Welcome to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined, and dedicated to silencing the chatter about what women should and shouldn't be doing as they age. Here to bring you stories about women in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, women who are leading inspiring lives that make a difference to themselves and others, are Catherine Marino and Gail Zalitsky. Hi, I'm Catherine. And I'm Gail, and we are the active voice of Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. Welcome to our weekly podcast. Our mission is to showcase vital women between the ages of 70 to 100 plus who shatter the myth that we become irrelevant as we age. These women lead fulfilling lives for themselves and others. Visit our website, womenover70.com, where you can access all the episodes. We also invite you to join our monthly podcast club, and we welcome speaking to your organization or group on Aging Reimagined. If women aging is a market you would like to reach, consider sponsoring an episode. Finally, if you are an author with a book about women, check out our book promotion opportunity. And today we're very happy to be talking with Jean Andrades, age 89, who lives in Minneapolis, Minnesota. In 1970, Jean Ann was the first African-American woman to become a field consultant with the YMCA of the USA. She spent 27 years with this organization. In 2019, Jean Ann was inducted into the YMCA Hall of Fame. She is a member of the National Service Project Steering Committee of the YMCA Alumni Association, which represents the 17 chapters of YMCA retired staff. Jean Ann's commitment to equity and social justice includes 10 years as a facilitator and community member for restorative justice community action and successful efforts to expand representation of African-American artists and other artists of color at the Minneapolis Institute of Art. Since the late 1950s, 1950s, Jean Ann has been an art collector and has enjoyed a passion for art, dance, music, and theater. Whether as a tour guide, usher, or audience member, Jean Ann says, if anything cultural is going on, I'll be there. Another passion has been downhill skiing. During the past 60 years, Jean Ann's skiing adventures have taken her to every continent except Antarctica. Thanks to Nancy Manahan, episode 118, for referring us to Jean Ann. And welcome, Jean Ann, to Women Over 70. Thank you. I, want, I would like to say something at first. I listened to the words reimagined, our lives reimagined. And I'm thinking, I don't think that I had imagined what my life would be like. <laughs> this reimagining is really something maybe different for me. I don't know that I had that kind of imagining at that time. You know, that is a, a theme that we hear from many of our guests, Jean-Anne, that um, we, things, things happened. We took the advantage of opportunities, didn't have, didn't have great plans, um, and wonderful things happened. So we'd like to hear some highlights of your career with the YMCA, since that was, um, you spent so much, much um, invested so much with that organization, and still do. Um, so let's start with what, it, what, is it, what did it mean to be the first African-American woman to be a field consultant? That's my third iteration. I started out <clears throat> when I went to college, I wanted to be a translator or interpreter. So I studied languages. Oh, and okay. I did get a teaching certificate. What's funny for me is that in trying to 
get into my preferred profession of translating and interpreting, I couldn't accept the job or that they wouldn't hire me because I couldn't type. Because I had worked very hard not to take typing when I was in high school <laughs> because I thought that would slot me forever as a black female into a secretarial job. Mm -hmm. So teaching was my first iteration when I got out of school and then into the field of social work, the second iteration. And the third was the YMCA where I spent huh? all of those years. Okay, thank you for that. So just what were you, you said you studied languages. What, what languages? Spanish and French. Okay. All right. And believe and then, me, if you don't keep on using them, they just sort of. <laughs> <go down laughs> the yes, I, I'm familiar. <laughs> right. So then tell us about the third iteration when you became a field consultant with the YMCA. What did that involve? Uh, before I became a field consultant, I had two other positions with the Y, the YMCA of Chicago. And one was as a group worker, social worker, and the other was as an administrator. And then from there, I went onto the national staff in 1970 and was there until 1992 when I retired. And, and what, what involved in being a field consultant? Well, being a field consultant consisted of working with local YMCAs to help them become stronger, helping them in setting their goals and objectives and helping them look at the ways and means of accomplishing that. Okay. And I also dealt with training, certification programs, um, international programs. And so I did a lot of training. In fact, I was right there near the beginning of that human potential movement. And that was back in the 60s. And that's when I got started studying and learning about being a trainer. So I did a lot of training, human relations training. For a while, they called it sensitivity training. Mm -hmm. I, in fact, I remember my first training was a marathon. I don't ever recommend them. Because <laughs> I don't like to go without eating and sleeping. <laughs> and I didn't do it either. I ate and slept. How old were you, Jean Ann, when you first did a marathon? 1970. So I must have been, what, 39? Wait a minute, 31. <laughs> well, I was 39. Yes. And that was marathon training for the for no, human relations. Marathon session. Yeah, marathon training. session. Yes. You, know, you have to go through some of this in order to be a trainer. Mm -hmm. At that time, marathons were popular. They were not popular with me. It was not popular <laughs> with me. So I told my group, now you guys might be here all night until you're worn out, but I can't do it like that. So when, we, when I started doing training with the YMCA, I would never do the marathon. Mm -hmm. um, because I think people have to, I don't like the idea of breaking people down because of no mm -hmm. sleep deprivation to mm -hmm. get something to come out of them that maybe wouldn't. 
I usually try to use an exercise that could provide the same incentive. And that way, then that that's interesting because in using these exercises, you use open-ended questions. Mm-hmm. Fast forward till today, till 1999, when I was in the first class at Minneapolis Institute of Arts. And the first thing we learned when you're giving tours is you ask open-ended questions. Mm. So there's a, goes, it comes around, goes around. It's <laughs> like uh, Richard Bowles. I don't know if you remember him. He wrote the What Color Is Your Parachute? Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, job hunting. Well, I went to one of his workshops. I think I went to two of them. And one of the things that he said to me that just stayed with me is usually where you start out in life, in your career, is where you end up. And he used the example of a woman who started out as a secretary. And when she ended up, she wasn't actually doing that beginning secretarial work, but she was still in the same field. And so I had to look at what I was doing. I started out teaching. I didn't like teaching. Teaching didn't like me. But when I'm doing consulting, what am I doing? Mm-hmm. I'm teaching. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so where yeah. I started out is where I ended up. What am I still doing even in my spare time? I am teaching. Tell us about, about your teaching now, what, what you have been in your so-called spare time. Mm-hmm. Well, I mentor younger people. Of course, everyone's younger than me. Uh, I'm, I mentor them through conversations, through the one thing that's always there, food, going out to eat and talking and listening and asking if I can make some suggestions. If you say yes, and who wouldn't say yes, uh, then I get a chance to, to ask more questions and just make some suggestions. One of the things about being a teacher, a counselor or a therapist, whatever, when you make suggestions to people who are open to it, you might not ever know the decisions they made and where, where they came from, whether mm-hmm. anything you said had any bearing on it at all. I learned that when I was mentoring young people in college. I had a, one of my kids, six kids, no children. These kids all had their parents. And she used to call me from college to ask me questions and whatnot. And I had to make myself listen and just ask a couple of questions here and there and not just do what I wanted to do. It's just tell her what to do. I want to say, girl, do this. I did not. I had to learn not to tell anybody what to do, but to give them some opportunities to listen to some ideas and then let them make their decision. Mm-hmm. And to not call them back at any time to say, well, what decision did you make? I would imagine you hear from people from time to time, though, about the difference you've made in their lives. Is that true? Yeah, yes, I do hear from them, but I don't always know what they did based on what we talked about. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> okay. I know they say, uh, I have a goddaughter. I'm so pleased with her growth because she used to call me before making decisions. And I, we have worked through that. And she does not call me unless she's really 
puzzled or mm -hmm. really unsure because she was doing it all herself. Mm -hmm. So very proud of her. It's great she has you. So um, I'd like to hear a little bit more about or something about your work with restorative justice community action. Oh, that's with um, people young and old who have received a citation or a ticket for some infraction of the law, some either misdemeanor or a felony, um, prostitution, drugs. We used to get a lot of public urination, don't anymore. We get a lot of, of uh, drugs, use, mm -hmm. fifth degree, fifth degree, fourth degree drug possession. Um, get a lot of that. Uh, if you're doing working with college students, they get a, we get a lot of them who have been have received citations because of being drunk uh -huh. and had had to go to the be taken to the hospital to have their stomachs pumped. Uh -huh. What's interesting is in restorative justice, there's no no blame, no shame. We allow you the time to tell us your story, what you did, why you did it, what you've learned and how you, what you've been doing since then. And then you, the, as a community member, the community members talk about how they personally and how their community has been affected mm -hmm. kind of behavior. And then there's a discussion between the referred participant and the community members about what kinds of thing they ought to be doing to repair the harm. But the most important thing is no blame, no shame. Mm -hmm. And so there has, we have to come to a consensus, the referred participant and the community members on what they ought to be, what they need to do within 60 days to repair the harm. And a lot Seems of like it is um, community service. Mm -hmm. uh, some of it is essay, writing essays, maybe taking a class. Um, doing things that can be done within 60 days. One is maybe to make contact with someone they've had a problem with, but we usually work together to come up with something that's agreeable to everybody. And when I was a facilitator, it was like being a trainer. Mm -hmm. You could ask questions. You couldn't say what you wanted to say, but as a community member, I can say it. It's just wonderful. <laughs> I'm glad you have that that outlet. <laughs> yeah. and, but I still don't just come out and say, "What were you thinking?" Yes, I have said mm. that. <laughs> what were you thinking? <laughs> yeah. So you, um, the arts of all kinds, have been seem to have been a really important part of your life. And tell us about your passion for the arts, and including what you have done and do with the Minneapolis Institute of Art. Well, I grew up with music because we listened to music on the radio. My mother introduced me to opera. So we'd listen to the Metropolitan Opera every Saturday. And so I continued with that. I haven't done that in a while since I've been up here because I went, I before I moved from Chicago to Minneapolis, I had season subscriptions to the symphony orchestra, to the, to the opera, mm. theater. And I do that here also, except 
I don't, very seldom go to the opera. Mm -hmm. The Lyric Opera in Chicago was the, the best next to the Metropolitan. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you just, I just leave it alone. So you, um, you've, I think you've, you're a tour guide at the Minneapolis Institute of Art. Institute of Art since 1998. Oh, okay. I'm thinking it must be time for me to retire from that. And they're making so many changes at the museum right now. Who knows? That might work out fine. Mm -hmm. But that has been a wonderful way for me to learn more about art and artists. Cheers. Mm -hmm. And for me to be able to share that with the public through my tours, where we use open-ended questions and we use the inquiry method, which means we are trying to open and start get a conversation going based on what the, the uh, group, the participants in your group in front of a painting is seeing and getting them to learn how to look at art, to appreciate it as the... Director, a former director of the Walker Art Center said to me, Jean Ann, you do not have to like the art, but mm -hmm. do not let that keep you from seeing it. Mm. Nice, nice. And so I have never forgotten that. And I started collecting art back in the late, late 50s. So I've been collecting art until recently when the prices have are way out of my price range mm. even on a payment plan. This is absolutely gone through the roof. Mm. Which is okay. good for the artists, but not great for just regular people, which I consider myself, to being able to purchase something. Well, what kind of art are you drawn drawn to for your collections? Uh, uh, the art that I collect for myself is all African-American and African. Oh, it's Asian also and Native American. Uh, at the museum, I give tours of Asia, Africa, the Americas, the Americas, uh, all of Asia, and contemporary art, world contemporary art. I didn't really know anything about contemporary art. In fact, if I looked at some of it, I'd say, what in the world is this? <laughs> I have learned so much about it. And the good news about contemporary art, as, a, as in other art, what you see and what you can describe and what, is, what it means to you, it might be completely different mm -hmm. than what I see or think I know. Your, what you see is as valid as what I know. Mm -hmm. And trying to, you know, one of the things I want to point out to people, do not belittle your thoughts because your thoughts are real to you. What you see is real. Mm. It, I never see it. And I learned that through looking at the little kids when you're taking them on a tour and they're sitting down in front of a painting and they see, I said, what do you see? Tell me what you see. And they see all kinds of things. And I can look at this painting. I don't see any of those things. <laughs> but they see them. And therefore, it's, a, it's valid. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Everybody is looking through their eyes, through their own lens. So I try to allow people to do that. <laughs> 
it, it, that seems to be a theme throughout uh, your work with the YMCA and the yes. restorative justice and um, keep and asking those open-ended questions, mm-hmm. very respectful of people's realities. I Listen, it might not always be easy, but it is important. Mm-hmm. Um, you, uh, I, when you and I had talked a while ago, you said that you were really pretty happy with having some uh, influence in expanding representation of African-American artists and other artists of color. Right. And, I've been the museum for years mm-hmm. to be able to get more art by African-Americans in. And over this last, se- oh, February is Black History Month. And so our tour of the month in February at the museum is African-American art and artists. Well, it used to be that if I could get six pieces of art that I could see by black artists, I was doing good. Now, 36 Mm. to choose. So they have come a long way. Excellent. They're they're trying to move. They have some new curators who I think are maybe much more open to the changes that we've been seeing in the last several years. And so they have been bringing in work by artists, African-American artists and other artists of color like crazy. It's it's so cool. That's wonderful. Thank you. Jean Ann, where you are, have you had the opportunity to see the Bisa Butler works? The new one? The Bisa Butler. Oh, yes. And I'm going to Chicago to see it, the exhibit. We have a piece of hers that's really very nice. Uh So we have that, and it's on view in our contemporary galleries. But her, I'm going to get to Chicago in order to see her total exhibit. And while I'm in Chicago at the Art Institute, I'll get to see the portraits, the Obama portraits. Yes. That's Mm -hmm. all in D.C., but it'd be nice to see them again. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. It's beautiful. Her work is just it's Pardon? stunning. Her work is just stunning. Yes, it is. Yeah. And we have another uh, artist quilter, different kind of quilting, La Merci uh, Fraser. Okay. She has wonderful quilts. That's on our second floor. You know, you can, you can go all over and there you see all these artists, these black artists and these other artists of color, their work. And guess what? I don't know about other museums, but at ours, we're moving away from self-taught artists, uh, naive artists. Um, what is another word? Uh, self-taught. Yeah. Anything that, that says, tries to separate artists out. Mm-hmm. or separate people. When you think in terms of naive artists, um, self-taught artists, no matter who they are, where, what they have done, you don't just draw or develop or make something without having some sort of thought and learning and, and a process going into it. So why, just because I haven't had, a person mm-hmm. has had formal training, does that take away them from them being an artist. Mm. Yes. Excellent point. So in the few minutes we have left, I, I'd like to hear about 
something else that has been a passion for you, which is downhill skiing. Oh, yes, yes. My mother always said, you don't ever stick with anything. <laughs> you know, you, you take something up and, because I think that's what my father did. My mother died some time ago, but I talked to her and I said, I have stuck with skiing over 60 years. Okay, so don't say that about me anymore. <laughs> it's it's uh, that's one of my passions. Are you still, will I you have, continue? Are you continuing? Will you continue to ski? I I think I have at least one more ski trip in me. <laughs> I always said I wanted to ski when I was ninety, but the group is going to Montana next year instead of California, where I was waiting for them to go. Mm. So they're not going to. California to Mammoth Mountain until 23. So I'll be 91, but I might have to go. <laughs> You'll let us know, please. <laughs> I will. So what else is on the horizon for you? And, and um, as you as you said, you are approaching 90. Does that make I'm, a difference to you? Well, I'm doing yoga. Try to do it at least three or four times a week. I do it online. And I use the chair. Uh, the silver sneakers, the chair and standing yoga, mm -hmm. because it, it strengthens your body, it gives you more flexibility, it, it, it's, all, it's all around. But what I'm thinking of now, since I'll be 90 in a couple of months, is maybe now is the time, since I still have most of my faculties, to determine, do I want to stay where I am? in my condo building, mm -hmm. there are 32 apartments and I might not see anybody else in the building for a week or more, or do, is it time for me to move to a senior housing? Oh, mm -hmm. So I've been looking at senior housing. Would you stay in the Twin Cities area? Yes, I don't have any place else to go and I am not at the stage in my life when I want to start at the beginning trying to make friends. Mm -hmm. Yes. Too hard to get, it's hard making very, to really make good friends. And because I take that lightly, because friendship is what I have the most of. Since all my family is gone, my friends are my family. Uh -huh. But getting situated, I, and I did not have this in my head until I went with a friend much younger to look at one of these senior housing buildings. And so then while we were there talking about what she wanted and was thinking about, I started asking questions. Mm. Questions I asked, the more I said, well, you have, this is something you really need to think about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm trying to wrap my brain around that because mm -hmm. I like the area where I live because it's convenient to everything that I do while getting to the lake to walk around the lake close to the expressway, close to public transportation, because those are things I always look for when I'm mm. looking for some place to live. Yes, understood. Transportation, amenities in the, in the area of stores or shops or groceries or something, proximity to public transportation and to the expressway. Makes sense. Yes. Trying to make life easier for me. Mm -hmm. I've done that most of the time. As I get older, 90 is a little bit daunting. 
more daunting. Once I get into the 90s, I'll be okay. But getting to 90, it's a little (laughs) about it. Daunting. You have to get over that threshold. Yeah. Just let me get past September 10th. It is coming up. It is. And people are asking me, what are you going to do? I said, I think because of this pandemic, I'm not going to do anything. Oh, yeah, we're going to do something. No, just let it go. Maybe 91, I'll have a 90th celebration. <laughs> On the top of a mountaintop when you're skiing. Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, <laughs> I can see me up there. <laughs> That's a wonderful image to to close on. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Jean for talking with us. And it's going on down the mountain. <laughs> yes. Oh yeah. Thank you, Jean Thank you. This has been very enjoyable. And you know, it piqued some things, some of my thoughts also. So, so I think it's always good to talk about stuff. Absolutely, I agree. Because <laughs> I learn as much as about me. As anyone else does, it triggers something in me in my conversation. It triggers something in me to think about, act on. So thank you very much. Yeah. And listeners, please subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Become an active participant in our community through our Facebook group. And no matter your age, participate in our monthly Zoom gatherings. You'll find everything you need to know about our Women Over 70 community on womenover70.com. See you next Wednesday on Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. Thank you for listening to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. If you like what you've heard today, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. In what ways are you shattering the myths that women over 70 are no longer relevant or visible? How are you celebrating aging? Join with us. Make your voice heard. Find us at womenover70.com.